If you could create one powerful change at work, what would it be? Would you change the way oncologists view your role and develop a successful head and neck cancer program for patients before, during, and after their treatment? Maybe you would change the way your clinical director values your services and gets them to approve funding for tools and continuing education the same way they fund PT and OT. Or maybe you would change the way oral care and thickened liquids are managed at your facility and be the reason behind reducing rates of aspiration pneumonia thanks to the protocols you implement. Whatever the change may be, I have good news. You can make it happen in the next six months. You're invited to join the Changemakers Collective, a strategic mentorship program starting this June. I'm looking for medical SLPs who want to make some serious change at work or in their community, the kind of change that has a ripple effect. Throughout the six-month program, you'll develop a tangible goal and receive step-by-step guidance to achieve that goal. Don't have a specific goal in mind yet, but know that something needs to change. Our mentors can help you iron out the details. This includes 18 group mentor calls for advanced ASHA CEUs, templates, a private community, and high-touch support for high-level goals. Go to www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers to learn more. Again, that's www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers. On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Kaki Brown. She's a pediatric speech language pathologist with over seven years of experience working primarily in the acute care setting with medically fragile infants, neonates, and children with a variety of complex feeding and medical needs. She's a certified neonatal therapist and CEO of Kaki Feeds Babies, where she uses her unique knowledge and clinical expertise to educate other professionals interested in working with medically fragile infants. She currently works in a level three NICU where she is part of a multidisciplinary team dedicated to improving feeding outcomes for premature and medically complex infants. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Kaki. Hi, how are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. So tell the people a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. My name is Kaki Brown. I am an SLP. I work exclusively in the NICU right now. I am in a level three NICU. And in addition to that, I am the owner CEO of Khaki Feeds Babies, which is my educational business where I provide education to SLPs, OTs, pretty much anyone interested in NICU feeding. My undergrad was actually in education. And then I realized during my last semester where I was teaching full student teaching full time 
that teaching was just not what I wanted to do full time. And I made the switch. I leveled. I applied to grad schools for speech. And here I am seven years later, and I've pretty much exclusively worked in like the pediatric acute care or NICU setting during that time. Awesome. I love that. I love how you fused your, you know, love for feeding babies plus education. So yeah, yeah. I can remember when I was little, like teaching my babies and all that thing. I was like set on being a teacher. And then as soon as I got into it, I was like, oh, wait, wait a second. But I tried to bridge that gap once I got into the speech world too. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So what are we going to dive into today? Yeah. I would love to just talk a little bit about my journey to getting into the NICU, kind of tips and tricks for getting into that role. I know it's a really coveted position. So kind of fusing out how I can help others get into that through continuing education and just relationship building, really. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Where should we start? I think let's start with just my journey to getting into the NICU world and what that looked like for me. There are so many ways this by all means is not like a one size fits all approach. I am very, very fortunate in my journey and I'll talk a little bit more about that. But ultimately during my last semester at graduate school, I really, really wanted an externship in the NICU or pediatric acute care setting. Um, So I used a family connection who was connected to a hospital in San Antonio, Texas. And through that connection, I was able to get my full-time externship there. I was extremely fortunate in that three of the girls out of the five speech team were pregnant at the time. So I was asked to stay on full time. So I also did my CFY in the NICU, which I know not a lot of people get to experience. It was a very, very unique opportunity for me. So I just jumped into being into the NICU pediatric acute care world immediately after grad school. But once I got into that position, I realized very quickly, there's a lot that I don't know. There's only so much we can learn during our two years of graduate school. And so I spent countless nights staying up all night, really trying to educate myself to make sure that I was providing that best care for this population. Yeah, I love that. So after your CFY, what did you do? Did you continue? Did you stay on and continue with them? I did. I stayed on about another year. I realized I just wanted to be in Austin. So I, after that, moved back to Austin, which is where I am today, but have always been, again, in that pediatric acute care world and just building on my knowledge. How can I help others? How can I help mentor people so that they get that opportunity to be in this really unique setting? I was, again, very, very fortunate, but I found that There's a lot of gatekeeping when it comes to getting into the NICU environment with seasoned clinicians. So if you don't kind of have a connection or someone that really like takes a chance on you and offers that mentorship, it's really, really hard to get into there. So within that, I just did a lot of self-learning to really try to become an expert in this field so that I could ultimately help mentor others to get into it. And so with that I am with my education background. I decided to start Khaki Feeds Babies, which again is just an online education platform offering education to anyone interested in feeding medically fragile infants, not even necessarily exclusively in the NICU environment, although that's a big part of it, but just working with medically fragile infants. Because again, it's not something that we get a lot of education on when we're in grad school. So until you get that experience or have a really great mentor, you just kind of feel lost. And I felt that a lot as soon as I got out of grad school. Let's go back to like your clinical externship days, your CFY days. Talk to me a little bit about going in there. I'm sure you just felt like 
really overwhelmed with all the things you had to learn? Did they sort of take you under your wing and teach you what you needed to know? Or did they tell you, you know, hey, you need to go take these courses. You need to go read all these articles. Talk to me a little bit about what that learning dynamic looks like. Yeah. When I was a student, so during my externship, I had the most incredible mentor. She really, really took the opportunity to educate me and anything that she felt like I could use more knowledge in. She was sending me those resources before I even started my externship. She sent me like a long email full of resources of like, hey, this is the environment you're coming into. Here are some research studies and things that we apply on a daily basis because she kind of also understood that I probably did not have a lot of that knowledge just yet. So being prepared going in, the first six weeks at least was probably majority me just observing, just getting a feel for the setting, just learning all of the medical terminology and everything that comes along with this acute care setting that I hadn't been exposed to yet. So I was the one doing like extensive chart reviews and within that Googling and really trying to learn what all of these little terms meant because I had no idea. So she was fantastic and really helped get me there. And then during my CF, I had two mentors in the NICU And they also were fantastic with helping me bridge that gap as much as possible and recommending CEU courses for me or other ways that I could expand my knowledge. The hospital itself had a couple of like programs that they put on primarily for parents. So one was about breastfeeding, which again was something I had no idea how to do. I had never had kids of my own. So it was brand new to me. And they were like, hey, just go to this class. We know it's intended for parents, but I think it would be great for you to see what they're educating parents parents on. So while they're in the NICU, you can kind of help with that as well. All right. Yeah. So, so I guess let's talk a little bit about, you know, now that you've been out in the field for a while, what sort of tips, tricks, advice would you give to SLPs who want to get into this setting? Or if they're a grad student that is trying to get into the NICU setting right away without any experience? Yeah. I mean, I would say It's definitely a very unique opportunity. This population is constantly growing. There's so many advances to medical care. So we're able to help kids so much earlier on than we used to be. So again, it's a huge, huge population that is going to need great, great therapists. I would say start educating yourself now as much as possible. I know CEUs can be expensive, but a lot of them do offer like student discounts and things like that. So taking courses, reading research related to the area. If you have the opportunity to even observe for a day in a NICU or pediatric acute care setting, that's always great to see. Is this really for me? It is an intensive care setting and the idea of working with babies is fantastic. And I love what I do, but we do have a lot of hard days. So really making sure it's a good fit before you get into a full-time position is going to help even more. There is an organization called NANT, the National Association of Neonatal Therapists, that I would recommend getting involved in. I was really, really thoroughly surprised when I went to their conference this year, the amount of students that were there and they were coming up to me and they were trying to build those connections of like, hey, like I've seen you online. Tell me a little bit about your NICU and all of these things. Like what advice would you have? Yeah, that's what I would definitely start with. And guidelines or advice that I would give those interested in the NICU maybe who are already out in the field. 
I would say getting into a hospital system in some capacity that has that connection to a NICU. So whether that be outpatient, maybe even adult acute care or building connections with those who are in that environment that you want to work with. I've seen those be really great routes to getting into our NICU. We will try to pull from like our adult therapists if they are interested in the NICU really letting your boss, your manager, whoever know early on to of your interest in that so that they don't, you know, seek outside employers when it comes time for opportunities to work in the NICU. The earlier you can let them know and kind of start having those conversations and asking them what you can do as that person to get into this setting, I've seen work really, really well. And we have some great clinicians who come out of like our adult acute care setting because they kind of have that adult dysphagia understanding. And it's a pretty, it's not an easy bridge, but it's a little bit quicker of a bridged gap when it comes to training for sure. Did you have any coursework in your graduate program on pediatric feeding, pediatric dysphagia, anything like that? Yeah, we had one course and it was one semester long. So within that course, only literally one lesson, one three-hour lesson of it was related to the NICU population. My course educator was in the NICU, so she kind of would help answer questions or anything like that that came up. But again, it's one course to cover the entire realm of pediatric dysphagia, which is challenging. Definitely something that you're not going to learn everything about until you get out in the field or you start taking courses on your own, really trying to educate yourself, which can be a very, very long process. And I personally felt like I was just thrown into it, kind of seeking out those opportunities for mentorship and guidance along the ways, even if it's not someone directly that you have like face-to-face contact with on a daily basis. Social media has kind of helped bridge a gap in that area where I have students or new clinicians reaching out to me to be like, hey, would you have any advice on this? So just using any opportunity that comes up to find guidance, because even though I did have a pediatric dysphagia course, it still was pretty limited in the amount of information that we really need to learn. Again, through Khaki Feeds Babies, my online education platform, I do have a personal course. It's called the NICU Feeding Therapist Accelerator that really dives into feeding within the NICU population. We not only talk about feeding, we talk about just neurodevelopment in this environment. It kind of blows your mind until you're in that setting of we're taking infants who should still be in the womb and this like fluid field, anti-gravity environment. And now we're throwing them out into this intensive care setting with bright lights and loud noise and all of these painful procedures that they have to go through on a regular basis. So just understanding what their development should look like while they're still in the womb and trying to help bridge that gap while they're in the NICU is a huge part of what we as speech therapists do as well. It's not just feeding, it's literally development across that kind of journey while they're in our NICU. Thank you for explaining that. My son was in the NICU for 15 days and there was so many things that I just didn't even know, like as a mom that were like typical baby stuff versus atypical stuff versus feeding stuff. And so, yeah, he was there for 15 days only because of feeding. He just wouldn't eat consistently. So That's the stuff that I think is just so fascinating that we just don't learn much about. Yeah, definitely. And feeding, of course, is kind of one that like last milestone that you have to reach in order to discharge home. So by that time, parents are like, 
please, can we just learn what we can do to help our kiddos get home? That's definitely one of the best parts about working in the NICU is like helping parents understand feeding and letting them feed their baby for the first time is just incredible. And I deal with it on a weekly, if not daily basis. And the amount of times I have moms just sobbing because their baby's finally eating, it's literally the most magical and memorable experiences on such a regular basis. I love that, Kaki. I love that so much. We didn't didn't have an SLP at the hospital when my son was there. So I was like, staying up all night pumping, trying to read like everything I possibly could. It was just, it was nuts, but yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Definitely. Just the amount of information I'm sure you got from outside of feeding too, that you're like, how do I digest all of this and take it in? There's definitely so much growth and change related to this field work, even the past 10 years since I've been a part of it. And it's just led to so many changes in clinical practice. Again, I know there's a lot of like gatekeeping and seasoned clinicians who really find the NICU and kind of stay in that place for so long. But it's so important for us, even as seasoned clinicians, to remember that there's like no one size fits all approach to the NICU. It's ever changing. It's ever evolving. And so we also need to educate ourselves and be sure that we're using the most up-to-date clinical practices and not just approaching it from, I'm coming in as a feeding therapist, approaching it from like this multifaceted infant, ultimately, like every single part of their body is interacting with each other. And each one of those can influence their feeding in some way. Yes, be only working on feeding, but it's so important to go kind of system by system and the treatment approach to these babies, because they can have so much impact. So for example, if I come in one day and I notice like there's a baby that's not eating well when historically they've kind of been on this like upward doing better each day, but the next time I see them for whatever reason, they are just not eating as well as the last time. I'm going to look at that entire baby and just try to decide what has changed in the past 24 to 48 hours that may not be a huge red flag but enough that I know like, hey, this could be the reason or an impact on their feeding. Something as simple as maybe they were up a lot the night before. They had a lot of procedures, maybe blood draws, things like that, where where they weren't able to kind of get that protected sleep in between their feed times. Did something change in their feeding plan? Maybe the nurse changed nipples, thought they could use a faster flow rate, um, and maybe they're just not quite ready for that. Did they have a diet change? Maybe they were getting a lot of breast milk. And now we have to add in formula for whatever reason. Did we change how often that baby was eating? Maybe they were going from eating four times a day to now we're making them eat eight times a day. And that can have a huge impact and they will get fatigued very quickly. Along with that, just what other systems are involved in their medical history? Do they have like cardiac diagnosis, respiratory, neurological, gastrointestinal, any of those comorbidities that Again, we may not have seen impact feeding so much earlier on, but now that they're in this place where they're feeding more, it could be having a much more impact and we need to kind of assess how can we help with that? What do we need to do? What feeding changes can we make so that they continue kind of on that upward trend as much as possible? I will say I often tell my parents in the NICU that feeding, unfortunately, is not kind of that upward slope. It's definitely a roller coaster and it has ups and downs along the way. And so don't be discouraged if one day they're doing really well. And then the next day they're kind of on that more downward trajectory. 
not taking as much, very, very normal within the population. Kaki, do you do any like fees or video fluoroscopies with babies? We do do video fluoroscopy in my NICU. I've worked in NICUs that do, that have done fees. Just in my current system, we do not have that. It's really one thing that we try to not do as often as you might in like the adult setting. Granted, I've never worked in the adult setting, so maybe that's not true. But because they are so fragile and they can have such little things that impact their feeding and make these changes, we don't want to expose them to a lot of radiation or always rely on that to like drive our plan of care. We're really, really focused on those bedside techniques as much as possible and using fees or VFSS as kind of our last resort, let's really see maybe there is some silent aspiration happening and we can make modifications after that. So there are so many benefits and I absolutely adore working in the NICU. I can't imagine at this point working anyone else, working anywhere else. But with that, there are definitely some things that we experience on a daily basis that are not always like rainbows and butterflies, that kind of perfect moments that I've been describing. We are part of usually a multidisciplinary team, ideally, when it comes to treatment plans of care. Um, so it's important to keep that in mind. And with that, knowing that we can make recommendations and, you know, try to use like evidence-based practices to make informed recommendations for our patients. But we really need to involve the entire team and those decisions and knowing that someone else may have a differing opinion or a differing approach that we may have to kind of rely on or go through first before maybe doing something else that I would recommend. Parents, like we mentioned, are a huge part of the care team, and they really, really want what's best for their baby, and they want to be involved in the plan of care. So I found that partnering with them as much as possible so that they feel included in that is a huge, huge help. I'm sure you can speak to this. It's really hard I, when someone comes in and is like, this is what we're doing for your kid. This is how it's going to be approached. This is only like the only option, ultimately, instead of being like, Hey, Teresa, what are your goals? How can I help you? How can we support you? Do you want to breastfeed? Breastfeeding in the NICU is so great, but it's often seen as such a burden because it does take a lot and it takes people kind of being there on a regular basis, encouraging moms. I can't tell you how many times I will go in for an evaluation and mom's like, yeah, I really want to exclusively breastfeed. And then a few sessions later, for whatever reason, Mom's like, oh, we're just really focused on bottle right now because we've been told that's the easiest way to get our baby home. Um, so trying to be as supportive to those moms and parents as possible and really help them reach their feeding goals so that they feel confident and comfortable. They're the ones taking our babies home. I'm not going home with them. So I really, really want to help empower them to feel confident treating and feeding their little one. Talk to me a little bit, Kaki. How do you feel about sort of just the dynamic that you've had working with nurses in the NICU? And, and I say this because my mom was a, a NICU nurse for 40 years. So it was interesting that she was a NICU nurse and my son was in the NICU and she and I like <laughs> butted heads about a few. She's like, no, it should be this way. And I was like, no, it should be this way. But then I've also heard sometimes just NICU nurses are just so protective of the babies and they just want things to be a very specific way. And sometimes that can just mean it's hard to affect change or, or hard to overcome some barriers. So I'm just curious to hear your perspective and sort of navigating those challenges. Yeah, I would say building rapport with the nurses is what is going to help 
as a therapist the most. They are spending 12 hour shifts with those babies. They become very, very attached. And like you said, they just are very protective. So building that rapport with them, offering them education as far as newer approaches. Q-based feeding is new-ish. It's been out for a while now, but most NICUs, it's still newer in the realm of kind of NICU treatment. So kind of just slowly starting to bridge that gap. Again, nurses are going to want like best outcomes and they really, really think like if I can just get this baby to eat, then I can get them to go home, which is ultimately what everyone wants. So talking them through why we might not feed babies when they're very drowsy, even though we could talking through that safety and the long-term outcomes of really letting the infant drive when and how they want to eat is going to set them up for more success longer term once they go home. Nurses are fantastic, but kind of like me, we only see those babies in the NICU environment and often don't see the longer term outcomes of what happens three, four, five months after they go home. Are they still feeding well? Or are they back to having some of those feeding difficulties? So trying to bridge that gap of we can't only look at the baby while they're in the NICU. We have to think bigger and really set out some supports for when this baby goes home. Do you guys have any sort of like community supports or do you like check back in with them after a few months? Like I know for me, that was just so like, that was awful. Like even like months two and three, like I just felt like I had no support whatsoever. Like it was just really, really tough. Yeah. Depending on kind of the level of need, just varies. The majority of our preemies are referred to like a neurodevelopmental clinic that does do check-ins with them. It's usually like a month after they discharge and then four months after that and then six months and they follow them as long as necessary. And they do some of that more intensive developmental testing to make sure, like you said, that they're still getting those supports if they need them or setting them up with more supports if they did not have those in place for whatever. We rely on early intervention a lot in Texas to help our families or home health. We also, while parents are in our NICU, have a program called Hand to Hold, and it is run by former NICU, a lot of moms. There are some dads involved, but I primarily see moms. So former NICU parents, and they come into our NICU daily, chat with moms at bedside. Again, just try to provide that support, which is so crucial of someone who's been in their shoes, who's experienced this. We have moms who have had to take their parents or their babies home with G-tubes. And so having someone who's gone through that so that they can speak to it and just kind of put them a little more at ease as far as like making that decision, because it is a big one and something we don't take lightly at all. Going back to nursing really quickly, we also have a new nursing education program in our NICU, which is done very, very well. I personally get to do a two-hour like feeding-specific class for them. And then OT also does a class that's about three hours on just development within the NICU. And they also come and shadow us for a half day. So they get to see what we're doing at the bedside and those like techniques that I mentioned in class, like put to practice and really it makes a difference to see it instead of just having someone speak to it and like maybe getting shown by another nurse here and there, like they get to see it from us firsthand. Talk to me a little bit, Kaki, is there, are there specific like professionals that you feel like you work very closely with in the NICU? Like, of course it's nurses, but is it 
you know, respiratory? Is it PT? Is it dietary? Is there, are there specific professionals that you work very closely with? Yeah, we do have a multidisciplinary approach in our NICU and part of the feeding team is going to be therapy in general, not just speech therapy involving occupational therapy in that. They have a unique perspective to bring as well as far as development and kind of what they're noticing within their sessions. We have dietitians who are constantly checking growth on the back end and seeing if they need to add anything, make any of those changes. And chatting with us in those instances when we have babies with feeding difficulties of, hey, what are you noticing? Because we're considering like maybe making a formula change or some sort of diet change. And I want to get your thoughts on how you think that would impact their feeding. Doctors, nurse practitioners, they're also a huge part of it. Again, nursing is at the bedside and seeing these babies for multiple feeds in a row. Whereas I'm coming in for like one feed a day. So getting their perspective on it is very important. Getting the doctor's input and approach because they may be noticing something within like lab work or, you know, things that I'm just not as well versed in that they're going to bring to my attention so that I can really watch for it and like see what outcomes that might have within feeding. Those are the main people I would say. We definitely have like case managers as well who are working with the families and bringing in that perspective. We have a discharge coordinator too who will meet with us and let us know when families are getting close to going home so we can go in, really be sure to catch the families and provide as much education we can to make them feel confident going home. In our NICU, we have rooming in rooms as well. So before parents are set up to just take their baby home. They have the option to stay like one or two nights and get the practice of being at home. So they won't have monitors or anything like that, but they will have nursing staff checking in with them to make sure that they're feeling confident and comfortable before they officially get discharged out into the world. Cause it can be, I think we stayed in one of those rooms for like a week. I was just so frustrated because yeah, he was totally fine. Like had no monitors, didn't need anything. The kid just wouldn't eat. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It can, <laughs> yeah, make a difference though. And often you guys are the ones who are learning like those cues. You're learning your baby best. So even if we're having challenges in the NICU setting, it's like, okay, well, let's see, like in this room with mom being there one on one direct care for 12 plus hours, what does that look like? How does that change feeding? That can make a huge difference too. Any final thoughts for anybody that's seeking to break into the NICU? Yeah. Like I mentioned, making connections, starting to educate yourself. There are a ton of free resources even out there at this time to kind of just get your foot in the door and start thinking through like, is this really something you're interested in? How can we really get you there? Yeah. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Kathy. Absolutely. And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.